Hey everybody, welcome to Required Reading. This week we're talking about All Quiet on the Western Front by Remarque. It is a German book about World War I uh, by our main character, Paul. It is dark, it is depressing, but in honor of Veterans Day and of course the end of World War I and November 11th at 11 o'clock when fighting stopped, we wanted to do a war book. We thought it was appropriate. Um, sorry it's a little bit late. We are approaching finals here at the school, and everyone's been incredibly busy. But in the meantime, we have a good episode for you, and I hope you enjoy it. Keep, um, oh, and I guess one planning note before I let you go. Uh, we are not going to be able to get to Hamlet this month, so we're kind of rejiggering our schedule. Uh, and on the 15th, we will release Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And then in December, we will do a Christmas carol and then take the rest of the month off so we can catch our breath and catch up with everything. Thanks for doing all you do. Keep sharing us where you share us and keep reviewing wherever you get us. Thanks. Uh, this week, in honor of Veterans Day slash Armistice Day, uh, we are doing the only book I can think of that's titled after the very last line of the novel, All Quiet on the Western Front um, by Remarque, right? Um, and I'm going to get his whole name out if I can. Uh, what is it? Emile, or sorry, Enrique Maria Remarque. Mm -hmm. um, a book so good that the Germans burned it during World War II. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Hoffman, and on panel we have... Mike Carroll. And? Mike Burns. And we decided we hadn't done really a war book since, um, well, the things they carried, and we figured this was appropriate for November. Um, so, I read this in school. I read this in high school. I read this here at Marist. Uh, we did it as part of our ninth grade world history class, mm. and it is, uh, <laughs> I remembered bits of it. I forgot how ex depressing it actually is. It is incredibly sad, uh, but it blew me away this as much this time as it did the first time I read it. Um, and Yeah, I think I read it in ninth grade as well. I, I don't know if it was for an English class or a history class. I might say English class, though. Um, and then it was one of the first books I taught, actually. I think I taught it during my student teaching um, at Wheeler High School, up where you live, Nick. Yeah. And um, But I hadn't revisited it since then, so it's been a while. Yeah, so that's going on almost 30 years now. Yeah, and... Uh, Reading it for this podcast, believe it or not, was the first time that I had read it. Um, Love that. Uh, yeah, it was it was fascinating. I think that I had I had obviously heard quite a bit about it, and as a result, I had kind of some preconceived notions in my mind as to what it is that it was going to be, um, and it wasn't that. Interesting. <laughs> um, I was yeah I I I was blown away by it. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I, let's talk about that. Yeah, so yeah, judging a book so, by its cover, what yeah, were you thinking? So uh, I, I don't know what kind of led me to think that it was going to be more. And I guess you guys, especially teaching the class that you do, that's a lot more wrapped up in the history side of things than um, than kind of the purely literature side of things. Uh, you guys might have something else to say about this, but I was expecting a little bit more. Um, kind of nuts and bolts, cut and dry history, and the passages that are in this book are breathtakingly beautiful. Um, and that's juxtaposed, Nick, you alluded to it already, against the gruesome brutality and raw reality of war. And I wasn't expecting quite that. Um, I was reminded many times over the course of reading it um, of The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. Mm -hmm. um, and it was almost kind of like The Things They Carried with uh, more of a structured plot to carry your way through. Uh, I thought that the, the Things They Carried really reads like vignettes. Now, there's a lot of kind of those aspects of vignettes that are that are throughout this of course um, I don't know how you would be able to tell a story like this without it coming across as those kind of vignettes um, but I 
I was captivated by it the entire time. Um, and not just by the story that was being told, but by the beauty of the passages as well. Yeah. I, I don't know. Okay, so obviously I'd read this before reading it again. But it is like very few other literary works about war I've ever read, mm. right? Um, he's obviously part of a campaign, but we get very little of that other than just generic movement of the troops. Mm. And... I don't know much about the history of uh, literature. I'm not going to pretend I do, especially world literature. But this, to me, is a kind of war novel that must have been pretty novel, because the other examples I can think of it are after this book. Um, you know, things like Catch-22, which has is almost like a parody of this in some points. Uh, we talked about, of course, the things they carry. We've already done an episode on it. But those books have, uh, you know, clearly have inspiration from here. Um, but this is so bleak and glib. And his writing style in points, I mean, and again, it's translated. I don't know how it sounds in the original German. I'm not going to pretend to. But it has almost Hemingway-esque sentences. They're very blunt at times. Very militaristic, I would say. Yeah. Like, to the point, very declarative short sentences. Yeah. And it, it that allows for impact. Um, and f- considering the book is fairly short, I mean, my version was around 200 pages. Uh, I think you could just pump this out if you wanted to read along with us. It's just, it is a heavy book. This mm-hmm. is a very dark book for the week before, for two weeks before Thanksgiving. Um, so where do you want to begin? Uh, obviously, we have characters to go through, and Paul Baumer is our main character, and he kind of takes us through the war. Uh, he's our voice throughout uh, the whole thing, really. Right, effectively, in, in his diaries or his, a narration of his account um, and his, essentially, four buddies that he joins with um, from school initially, um, thinking war is going to be this great, glorious thing, as they've been pumped up to believe, and quickly finding out otherwise, um, and following him and his unit through the whole war or as far as they get yeah yeah just in terms of kind of the plot you you're introduced to these characters as they're on the precipice as they're on the brink of uh of going on to their first tour i guess you could say so to speak um and then you follow them through kind of their preparations and then throughout that first tour and then some of the passages that i found really riveting were during the leave that he takes in between and then he uh he encounters a group of prisoners um Russian prisoners prior to going back for his uh, prior to going back for his next tour, um, and then is injured, goes to the hospital before returning for one final kind of like tour, one final stint, mm. um, and that's where he, um, that's where, yeah, that's where the, the yeah. I think it'd be good to read the introduction or sure. the, like the little um, preface at the beginning. This book is neither to be an accusation nor a confession. And least of all, an adventure, for death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped its shells, were destroyed by the war. Uh, I, it's a prologue or an epigraph or whatever, but like that's it. You know, <laughs> you realize right there that there's no humor in this book, really. Um, Which we've seen in other books, I and mean, this is the Lost Generation. This is coming out of the War Poets. This is all that. Um, and I guess it spoke to people because it was published in 1828, I think. 1928. 1928. Excuse me. 1928. I think by 1930 it was already an Academy Award-winning movie. Right. So it hit a chord globally immediately. Um, Um, Which is so interesting because, again, it's about a German written by a German. You could put yourself in almost any position there. You would just, if you control F and replaced all the German with French and the Mm. French with German, it's a very similar story. They look at these people as monstrous. And we'll get to the scene where the guy's literally dying next to him. But, you know, he's been so trained to hate these people that the Russian prisoners milling around. Like, it's just his relationship with these other nations. Uh, it's obviously a critique on nationalism, nationalism mm-hmm. fueled by the teachers uh, in his life, which we see when he's on leave, that it's really heartbreaking to see him realizing that it, essentially his entire identity has been a lie, mm. uh, which I think is an interesting And his education. We can go there, too. As teachers, he's pretty down on what he learns in school and yeah. the practical, practicality say, yeah. of it as far as just surviving in the trenches. And this is different, too, since we're calling back to other podcasts we did. It's different from Killer Angels and that 
Killer Angels has like a mile high view of the generals and the people in charge, where this yeah. is a 19 year old foot soldier literally in the mud and blood. Yeah. Um, just trying to survive yeah yeah and i think really early on i've got a a passage here that's talking this is before he embarks on on that first tour it says the idea of authority which they represented this is talking about the kind of the the generals and the um I guess the the generation, if you will, of the of the past, uh, says the the idea of authority which they represented was associated in our minds with a greater insight and more humane wisdom. But the first death we saw shattered this belief. We had to recognize that our generation was more to be trusted than theirs, and I I think that it it sets up this discrepancy between kind of Mike what you're talking about the the nitty gritty these soldiers that are that are quite literally in the trenches and those. That are talking about it back home. Those right. that are that are moving the pawns on the chessboard, and those that are in positions of authority to be able to make these decisions. There's such a drastic disconnect between those people in the positions of authority that he's talking about in this quote, and then those that are down there in the mud. And I think that that's kind of a, a trope that carries through the entire story. Yeah, as I mentioned in that opening, that they're destroyed by it. And when he goes home, as you talked about before, Mike. He doesn't even know how to talk to his mom or parents anymore. He is so changed by what he's seen right. and experienced and, um, that he's lost. It's a lost generation. Yeah. 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 Um, I guess we can introduce some of the other people he joins with. Uh, there's uh, Stanislaus Kaczynski, who he just calls Cat. Cat is like older than them by almost twice, uh, but he be kind of comes a mentor, you know. Um, and he's like this resourceful dude who helps he's them get sergeant, stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you have Crop, uh, who's one of the guys who he joins him from the same school, right? Uh, Mueller is another one of the classmates. Uh, you have Chandon. Chadden. Chadden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If anyone's better at German than I am, please. <laughs> uh, he's like this wiry dude. Um, he's the one who really hates Himmelstrass, who we'll, I'm sure will get to, because that's the closest we get to levity, I guess. Um, <laughs> torturing somebody. <laughs> then, then beating the crap out of him. I was happy when they got to turn oh, the Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. Quite, it's karma, baby. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and then... And then they're just kind of this core of people who are students together, right? Uh, there's one more. Am I missing? Lear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but they're kind of the original core group of people that we follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their fate is kind of told throughout the rest of this. Um, the opening scene, they've just been relieved from the front. Mm-hmm. And they find that the cookie, the, the chef, has made twice the rations because he didn't know how many casualties they had. Um, and they're hungry enough to eat the rations because they're on the verge of malnutrition at this point. Um, but he's reluctant to feed them all the food, not knowing that how many have died. And that's uh, thinking back as a new teacher, uh, I remember very clearly like how I'm going to teach this what the hell am I doing in front of the class and all those normal new teacher fears but I remember hanging on the peg like all they want to do is eat and defecate and like hang out with their buddies and that's life is reduced to that it's very animalistic in that way um, to sort of be tribal and eat and and know literally circle latrine latrines and sit there for two hours talking to each other yeah Um, that's what life is survival at yeah, the most you, basic levels. I think that's that's really interesting and I know that I know that we're kind of like whittling it down there but that notion particularly of that talking with the buddies that notion of camaraderie is so present throughout the text and it's something that for for Paul ends up being kind of this almost it's it's like the only security blanket that he has. He ends up losing so much and there's his world that had kind of like Nick what you're saying about his identity being stripped away from him he loses so much and yet the thing that he has that like one protective security blanket that he has is the camaraderie and the voices of his brothers yeah. uh, and n- not literal brothers but but brothers in arms and the, his comrades his band of brothers yeah. if we're going to talk 
Oh, yeah, militaristic. Yes. And I think that that's, that's really uh, perhaps the most powerful force second to the totally destructive raw power of war I think that the, what that's up against is this kind of like uh, this feeble protection armor if you will of uh, of camaraderie mm-hmm. and it goes back to what you are saying before because the only other people that can possibly understand what they're going through are the people that are yeah. living it with, mm-hmm. with, the, with them with each other and again, we'll get to this, but the parental generation is the one from between the wars, right? They didn't fight in the Franco-Prussian War because that was their father's wars. And this is the children's war. So in between, uh, I think the, the teacher is Kantarek, right? Mm-hmm. Who's like, you know, so patriotic. He gets all these kids to sign up. He's the one we meet in town later and he buys a kid a beer because he's being such a hero. And he's this schoolmaster who they never could do right by, but now he's like so proud of them. He, I think he calls them the Iron Generation or the Iron Soldiers, and it's just, and again, just from my historical like standpoint, Iron I wonder youth, what yeah. Iron Youth, yeah, excuse me. I just wonder, um, again, this is me as a historian speaking, how our audience, know, what they know about World War One, because uh, it is brutal, uh, very similar in ways to our American Civil War or the Crimean War. But this is a war with modern weapons. Uh, they, they, t- they threaten gas attacks here, flamethrowers, mm. grenades, bombs, automatic weapons. Um, but we still don't have antibiotics. So these people are dying horrible, gruesome like deaths in a way that, again, nothing against our current soldiers, but with drones and distance weapons, we don't see anymore. Uh, there's a very graphic scene where he's dying in a pit with this, uh, with with another soldier, and the soldier is bleeding out in front of him. And when we get there, we'll, we'll talk about it, but it's a kind of death that hopefully we don't see too much anymore, not to mention that there are millions and millions and millions along these lines, uh, to the point where by the end of the war, he's describing you know children fighting in the war, and these people that shouldn't be fighting, even after he's lost his will to fight he realized this is this is wrong yeah and there's the scenes where um talking about weapons and the gas where the new recruits don't even know how to put their masks on and yeah. he comes into a trench and they're just all blue and black because they've inhaled the gas and just dying by the scores and it's it's harsh but the end of the first chapter talking about um Kanarek and they're talking about a letter he got um Yes, that's the way they think, these hundreds of thousands of cantoreks. And he's talking about the people back home. Iron youth, youth, we are none of us more than 20 years old, but young youth, that is long ago. We are old folk. Yeah. So already in the first chapter, they're 19-year-olds with, you know, um, a very jaundiced and hardened view of life because of what they've seen. Well, and uh, by this point, too, uh, if we're talking the end of chapter one, I think Joseph Beam has already died, and he's another one of their classmates that Canterac, like, convinced to fight and died particularly gruesomely. Yeah, yeah, there's that that scene, that moment when they return, and it's during their leave, and it's it's when Canterac gets kind of the, he's, I think that he's being, He's being enlisted himself to to go and fight, and the one of the characters I can't remember who it was. I don't think that it was uh, I don't think that it was Paul, but I think that the, the, the one of the characters confronts him and says that like this is what you deserve. You like do, do you even remember these faces of these young boys that you were sending into war to fight your patriotic cause? And it's a it's a really kind of like powerful moment that that you see that disconnect that I was talking about before between the idealism around the patriotism and the the theoretical side of the war and then just how different that is from the I keep using the word raw uh, the raw side of the the trench life and that that warfare that these boys are experiencing and just the practicality because their one buddy loses his leg and ends up dying and they go visit him and they're very sad but they know he's dying and was it Mueller? Mm-hmm. Just wants the boots. Yeah, because he knows how valuable that is. And yeah, you don't take you don't want to like take them from your buddy who's dying yet, and but you need those boots because it's yeah. your key to your survival. And so how do you how do you walk that line? Yeah, um, yeah, it's heartbreaking and that's the first chapter yeah exactly <laughs> good lord yeah there, there's a line well, we'll get to it I'm, I'm i keep wanting to jump ahead because it just gets worse <laughs> and, and, and i don't mean to to just drag it down but this book is powerful because of that that sadness but that, there is this kind of 
Gallo's humor about them sitting around waiting for him to die. And, like, he's like, I was here first. I get the boots. Like, yeah, because he needs the boots. I, I, You understand the practicality of it, but to sit around Kemerek's bed and just wait for it is so, so dark, so grim. Um, but... We get this feeling, uh, the line is, the first Vimbarda showed us our mistake, and under it was, uh, under it, the world as they had taught us broke into pieces. Mm. That's it. The patriotism falls away, and we're shattered by the first bombing run. Um, yeah, the Battle of the Trenches. It, you know, in the first month of August, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million people die. Uh, you know, it's it's gruesome. It's, it's brutal, and there we have it. Um, do we want to give up now, or do you want to go to the next chapter? <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's it's just it's dark. Um, and th- but the second chapter we get more about who Paul was before mm-hmm. the war started. Uh, he was a poet. He now feels like he doesn't have any feelings left, uh, which is understandable. Um, and he kind of is focusing on how everyone in of his generation is going through the same thing, right? That, like Mike was bringing up before, their pre-war lives seem so vague that now they don't recognize themselves. And that's happening very quickly. Um, And we ruminate on all the things that happened in the previous chapter, pretty much. I'm curious. No, go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say that it's kind of like almost told a little bit in a flashback. I'm thinking more from the narrative and authorship side of things that you certainly (laughs) capture your reader with the first chapter and and all of the the gore that's kind of present in in these boys that are watching death firsthand. Uh, but then you do need to provide a little bit, Nick, as you're saying, of this this kind of like flashback a little bit. Uh, it's kind of like a flashback, but it's it's more kind of providing a little bit of some of where it is that these characters are coming from. Um, and I... I in, when we started this off, I was... It, it, it can be a little bit difficult to kind of finagle your nice, clean, cut, beautiful plot line throughout the story because it kind of does jump around a little bit and mm-hmm. it can be difficult to follow, especially early on when you're going into these characters before they go to war and yet we started our story while they're already in the midst of war. It can it gets a little bit jumbled in the beginning, but I think that it kind of really flushes itself out during that first tour that they're a part of uh, and then when they come back during that leave, you see where where there once was an identity in these characters before they left for war. Mm-hmm. It's in stark contrast with all of the struggles that particularly Paul is having, returning back to the to the regular way of life, if you can even call it that. And I think that throughout that first tour, there's all those questions as they're hanging out with their buddies, uh, and they, they keep saying, like, well, what are you going to do when you go back? Uh, and, and they keep kind of like, some of them are willing to kind of fantasize about what they would do. Uh, and I can't remember who it was but they, they keep talking about like the farm that they can't wait to go yeah. back to and then but then there are some that are saying like no I can't think that way and it's just it's not only a physical torment that it's taking on these boys physically it's also an incredible emotional and psychological war as well and you see a great deal of that when they come back during that first stint of leave mm-hmm. I mean and the way I felt at least when I was reading this it was almost like um, like a car accident or something in that you have the events building up to it, and then after the event, he's almost in shock, and he's kind yeah. of reprocessing it in the second chapter. Yeah. Because we do. We cut back to Kemmerich near death, eventually. And he does talk briefly about his training Training here. We'll get more of it. Uh, but Corporal Himmelstrass, who we're told was a postal agent, like a postman, and how much of an asshole he is. <laughs> like, he really uh, picks on specifically our four heroes, uh, Paul Tangent. Uh, sorry, Jaden. I... I don't even remember how you said it. Jaden, 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 like a Jaden. Jaden. That's again. I don't speak German, but that's how I've heard it. I'll take your word over mine. Trust me. Uh, my my French is bad. My Dutch is worst. So <laughs> we're, we're both swinging it, swinging for the fences. But um, I'm trying to decide if Himmelstrass is. I mean, he's obviously the butt of their jokes. They'll eventually beat the crap out of him. Very satisfyingly. But 
I believe even Paul acknowledges at one point that if Himmelstrauss had not hardened them, they would not have survived the front. Mm, yeah. And it's 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 that kind of weirdness that we get because what does he do? Well, patriotism means that you suppress your individuality, your personality. Um, you sacrifice everything to become a citizen soldier willing to lose it all for your country. And this little postman, this pocket Napoleon here, uh, is the one who brings them to it. Uh, when they actually see him on the front later on, there's this kind of, you know, dark humor about it to them, this kind of schadenfreude. See, there's German. Um, but, you know, for them, he's in some ways the reason they're even surviving because they've gone through so many other new recruits who didn't have him who have already died, um, which we get. And when they see him on the front, they're they're resentful, but Himmelstoss is the guy that, like, he outstrips, the, he advances farther than anyone else, and so they kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you're, you're walking you the walk. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a reluctant acknowledgement to him. Yeah. And we, we do also here, around here somewhere, get the first inklings about this, because when uh, Kemmerich is dying, he was talking about how he wants to be the head forester and he'll never get that opportunity, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, Paul's doing his best, kind of, because he's tried to harden himself, but at this point, it's not all, not all of his humanity is gone. And he's like, oh, don't worry, these new artificial limbs, you'll... you'll Right, like he's like, yeah. they're better than you remember. You realize you'll be fine. Um, and then Kemmerich says, "Give my boots to Mueller," and starts weeping, and then never wakes up. Um, and we leave Kemmerich as his body's literally being just cleared out, so that there's room for another soldier. Right, because he's a seventeenth to die that day or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which... Yeah, I mean, and again, it's it's a scene you would see in a, the, uh, most medical dramas with a different ending, where he's like, he's Paul's running to get the doctor, and he goes, ah, let me guess, another one. Amputations just haven't been going well today. Right. Well, room for another one. And you're just, and it's just, it is. And Paul takes the boots because you know Mueller still needs the boots. Yeah. So we depressed you. <laughs> just uh, we've. I don't know. We just need Dave to truck us through, like in. Uh, the last I do. One. I, I do have a quote that um, I know it's a little bit ahead of where we are. Please go ahead. And, and not to kind of like force us a little bit further into the into the story, but during that period of leave, we we keep talking about the stripping away of the identity, um, in the individual at at the hands of and uh, at the benefit of this notion of. Nationalism, And I think that that really comes to a front when Paul is at home and he's in his library and he was a poet and he was a reader and he had all of these emotions that he used to have with these books and he's standing by his window and he's trying to page through them and it's it's he's like trying to get those emotions back up and he's just not getting anything. And I, I have the passage here. It says, Wearily I stand up and look out the window. Then I take one of the books, intending to read, and turn over the leaves. But I put it away and take out another. There are passages in it that have been marked. I look, turn over the pages, take up the fresh book. Already they are piled up beside me. Speedily more join the heap. Papers, magazines, letters. I stand there dumb as before a judge. Dejected. Words, words, words. They do not reach me. Slowly I place the the book back in the shelves. Nevermore. Quietly I go out of the room. And those notion, the, the, those quotes there, those direct quotes of words, 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 and nevermore. I mean, they're right from powerful, famous works of literature, right? I mean, you get The Raven, you get Hamlet with words, words, words. Right. And it's as though somebody that used to have this part of his own individual identity, it's now being stripped away. And I, I want to put kind of the, the English teacher hat on for a second. And sorry, guys, if you think that this is reading too much into it. But Ooh, this, it. this quote of the words, words, words from Hamlet is in the midst of a conversation, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, between Hamlet and Polonius. And it, over the course of that conversation, Hamlet is is responding to Polonius's questions about why, why, why are you reading? And he says, oh, words, words, words. And it's supposed to be kind of this this fruitlessness of of reading and, the, and kind of the, the hopelessness that's there. And at the same time, it's right in the midst of Hamlet. Hamlet's 
antic disposition that he's putting on. And so you get at one point a character here in Paul who is very much in the midst of trying to desperately I would go so far as to say reclaim some of that individuality and some of those emotions and for the words that he's that he's grasping at here those words 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 to come back so hopelessly or the, that word nevermore that so powerfully is used again and again in the Raven it's almost as though it's a, it's a perfect reiteration of the fact that he's desperately trying to reclaim this this anything emotions, feelings, uh, some sort of his individuality, and it's and it's all grasping at straws. And that was one of the most heartbreaking moments for me when he when it says quietly I go out of the room. It's like, my gosh, as an English teacher, I'm trying to think that like if there's some salvation for him anywhere, if there's any sort of if there's any sort of reprieve that he should be able to get, it should be in the stories that he loved and the poetry that he loved when he was reading it when he was younger. And not even there does he get any sort of release from from this tragedy of war. Uh, so it was one of the one of the most heartbreaking moments for me when he wasn't able to get any sort of reclaimed identity from the reading of those books. I think you're right on with that. And he's standing at a window. So I was talking to my classes like windows are symbols of oh, yeah. transition and moments of transition. So he's seen things one way and, and can't connect with what he used to be anymore. And then I think it's also interesting you brought that up because in the beginning of chapter two, think the title of the play he's writing is Saul yeah which I can't help but think of the Bible and then Saul turns into Paul and yeah. so like Paul is a different Paul in this as like the before and after yeah. as you're yeah, talking absolutely. about absolutely that transition um yeah and how it is sad that you can't connect or something that meant so much to him is just empty now yeah yeah well, I mean, and I guess it fits in uh, perfectly. I'll lead, I'm re-leading you back to take over the discussion here, but uh, right now we started teaching transcendentalism, which is an American version kind of inspired by the European Romantic movement, followed by a period called realism. And this feels the least transcendental of almost any book we've done. Like as, And, you know, he was a poet. He was a playwright. Like, he had something about himself that he, found artistic, found beautiful, and now it's been slowly driven out of him, even to the point of the end of this chapter, um, where we'll talk about wetting the bed, um, right? Where your own natural body is corrected because it is wrong. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a lost generation. How many times do can we say it? But that's that's what he's riffing on here. Yeah. That's what he lived through. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's probably why it resonated so much in 28, because these people are looking at the aftermath of the war to end all wars. Mm-hmm. But ironically, it just leads to another war. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. What else you guys got? Um, well, I mean, I just, it was a scene I had, one of the few scenes that I actually remembered. Uh, when they find out that Himmelstrass is coming to the front, we find out why everyone hates Himmelstrass, and they kind of go through some of their basic training stuff. Um, you know, and they, and they even pontificate why uh, a postman can turn into such a monster. And the line that I think we get is something along the lines of, even a dog trained to eat potatoes will snap at meat, yeah. right? And it's like this idea that he all of a sudden has power, he's going to use it. And so why do you particularly hate him? Well, because uh, he was a bedwetter. Um, and to break the habit, there was another bedwetter, and they had to bunk on top of yeah, each other. Yeah, uh, Which, uh, kinderwater. And they would just end up sleeping on the floor. Yeah, and, and catching colds and, and, and getting sick because of the fact that they were cold and now wet and now sleeping on the floor. Yeah, Exactly. And, you know, because it's a problem with their health, mm-hmm. not exactly... Uh, their choice, but, you know, Himmelstrass doesn't care. Uh, and at this point, they plot their revenge upon Himmelstrass, which is to wait outside of a pub, throw a sack on him, and beat the crap out of him. Yeah, and they get away with it, too. They, they all things considered, they uh, it's kind of the perfect crime that right. they get away with. Well, and if we were talking about morality in a book, you'd want them to get their comeuppance. You want their character to change because of it. Nope. No. <laughs> it's very realist. Yeah, that's that's one moment. And another one that I was kind of struck by was later on when Paul's in the hospital and they're doing anything that they can at this point to survive. And right. I think in, in in a sense, I can't remember if at the time it's, it's uh, I think it's 
Albert or Cat that he's that he's with while he's in that hospital wing. But he strikes a match and help and holds it up to the thermometer so that they can get a little bit more time a off of the front, but b together with one another. It's that notion of camaraderie come right. back again. Yeah. That he's that he's kind of like he's he's working the system a little bit. He's he's faking a fever here. He's faking a temperature. Yes, so that he can keep himself off of the the front line and off of that that position of danger. But I think that there is an added aspect of wanting to be among his other comrades and that brotherhood that forms in those moments that I think is kind of the end goal of some of these moments of maybe a little bit of blurred morality, which I think would certainly be fair in, in a story of war like this. Yeah. Yeah, you do what you can or what you need to survive and be with your buddies and unapologetically that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and, and to wit, the next chapter is literally the fear of the bombardment. They're being pushed to the front to lay the barbed wire. And Paul makes a comparison. Now we're just human animals, right? Yeah. We, we've lost those things because once the bombs start falling, it's just chaos. Mm-hmm. They're like, and, you know, all the drill and all the order commands you can call go out the window when bodies are flying everywhere. And um, I think it's Cat who has the second sense for oh this 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 gunfire sounds different tonight there will be a bombing, mm-hmm. um, and he's right it just happened earlier than he thought it would and this is also where we get the scene of it the bombing is followed by the gas mm-hmm. and uh, people get the gas on masks on on time but not all of them right, right? Yeah. and it does remind me of a story I, I tell when we get to the mining in the 19th century but the old guys didn't want to be around the rookies because the rookies were the ones most likely to make a mistake that would get them killed, right? Even on an airplane, they tell you to put your mask on first mm-hmm. before you help those around you. And there's that that real fear. It's like the rookie is like, doesn't know when to put a mask on, doesn't know when to take it off, doesn't even know how to do it. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's totally brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <sighs> I mean, at this point, we can, like you said, we can walk through the whole book or we can focus on specific scenes. Is there anything you want to just jump to? Because this book is grueling. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump ahead. There's a quote there, a passage at chapter seven, and, and you're talking about animals. I don't know if this is what you're referring to, Nick, this scene or not. I don't think it is, but this is certainly the idea that's coming back. And I mentioned it before. You're just reduced to eating and pooping and being with your tribe, literally. Um, and so he says, just as we turn into animals when we go up the line, because that's the only thing that brings us through safely. So we turn into wags and loafers when we are resting. We can do nothing else. It is sheer necessity. We want to live at any price. So we cannot burden ourselves with feelings, which though they might be ornamental enough in peacetime, would be out of place here. Kemmerich is dead. Uh, High Westhouse is dying. They will have a job with Hans Kramer's body at the judgment day, piecing it together after a direct hit. Martins has no legs anymore. Meyer is dead. Max is dead. Byer is dead. Hammerling is dead. There are 120 wounded men lying somewhere or other. It is damnable business, but what has it to do with us now? We live. So yeah. That's sort of cumulative effect of all these people that die. And as you go through the novel, he loses people in this platoon and his buddies one by one. But just that passage, just like, this is dead, lost his leg. Da, 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 da. It's just yeah. overwhelming. Just like punches you in the gut. Well, and and I know again here comes the here comes the English teacher cap, but Please. that that notion of that epistrophe, right? That it keeps ending on that word dead, mm-hmm. dead, 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 and then the the last word of that passage is we live, we live, yeah. right? So that that then you said it at the start of this, Mike, that the the syntax of so many of these sentences is so short it's like kind of blunt simple sentences and to hear so many of them rattled off with that notion of epistrophe of dead 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 I think that it's super super powerful and it's one of the reasons that I was totally blown away by by so much of the language in this story and I have up um, the passage that I when when I was when I was making my way through it it was just like totally knocked me like on my rear end uh, but this is this is what it says this is in the I, uh, I can't remember exactly where it is that it's that it's coming it, it looks like it's kind of like in the aftermath of that that next tour that he, they've gone back after their leave I think it's even past uh, the the hospital stay and he's, he's back out for a third time out on the front and he's talking about 
this notion of how feeble they feel, how fragile and how um, how delicate they feel. And yet the one thing that they keep relying on is that camaraderie. Right. And it keeps coming back to that. And it's described as like a, um, a candle in the wind. It's kind of described as like this flame that's flickering. Um, and, and this is the, this is the de- description. It says, and at night, Waking out of a dream, overwhelmed and bewitched by the crowding apparitions, a man perceives with alarm how slight is the support, how thin the boundary that divides him from the darkness. We are little flames, poorly sheltered by frail walls against the storm of disillusion and madness, in which we flicker and sometimes almost go out. Then the muffled roar of the battle becomes a ring that encircles us. We creep in upon ourselves, and with big eyes stare into the night. Our only comfort is the steady breathing of our comrades asleep and thus we wait for the morning and it's this notion that the only protection that they have against this terribly dark and bleak world is their comrades it's the breathing of their comrades mm-hmm. and I, I just found that so powerful and so beautiful yeah that's a, that's a great passage yeah mm-hmm. um <laughs> I'm trying to think of where we need to go. I, I, I mean, we can. I just want to inject a scene that's not funny, but just it stuck out to me as a little bit more light. Uh, there's a scene after the bombing, um, or maybe it's right around the bombing, where they get extra rations of food. And there's like cheese and rum, and everyone's eating up. And there's these rats that keep coming to try to take it. Yeah. Is is this the pig, the the pig slaughter, or is that a, a no? That that happens on the other side of the yeah, battle. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're like trying to like poison the rats so that they can keep eating. And like again, it's something that in everyday life it would bother you to no end. But you're in the battle, so this is kind of a thing that they're doing. Yeah. Um. And then on the far side of the war, I mean, again, because food is one of the themes. If you want, you could write a whole literary critique. Absolutely, of this yeah. Um, they have the guy who can just find stuff, and he finds a pig, and they're just like cooking this. They gut the pig, they cook it up, they have a nice little feast. They're worried about whether or not the fire will attract people. Um, it reminded me of, oh God, what's the quote? Uh, it's a Hemingway quote. I think it's from. Um, I'll just say it. He's drinking a martini for the first time on leave, right? And he says, the martini was so cool and crisp. For the, for the first time, I felt civilized, right? Uh, and that's what I get. Like, they're sitting around what is such a weird little feast. But for a moment, they're out of the fighting. They're all together, and they're eating a pig. And it's a bliss. Yeah, and at, at that same time, Paul is flipping pancakes. He's making right. pancakes. And then the, the bombardment comes, and there's like a scary moment there where we're not sure if everybody's going to make it out. And Paul... Paul makes the note of saying that he didn't drop a single pancake as he's scurrying out of this building. But I think that that so beautifully represents this. It's it's almost like he's trying to cling on to that something from his past. He said that pancakes were his favorite food, right? And if we're, we're diving into the food here, we're diving into the food. And I think that him cooking those pancakes for his brothers and in that moment I think he's trying to kind of like literally and figuratively clutch onto that notion of the past something that brought him joy and happiness in the past and he's willing to risk his life to flip those last four pancakes to make sure yeah. that his that his buddies and that he can enjoy this one last thing from his past that gave him enjoyment because in some ways that's almost more important than life and death are these little these little glimmers of their individuality that they can grasp onto and that and that brother that they're sharing it with. And as you're talking, I'm wondering too, I mean, obviously food is important to a soldier or anyone, but food is probably, or taste is probably the most transitory or ephemeral mm-hmm. of our senses, right? Like yeah. you can think about a good meal, but you can't like recreate it like you can mentally or, or hear something again. So I'm wondering if that that idea of life being short and the syntax yeah. being short and, and the food is just a, a simple little joy and, and it's a very finite time and then you have it. Yeah. In that pig scene, don't they end up all with diarrhea? Is that the yeah. same pig scene? Yeah. Like it's literally, not, all eleven of them are squatting outside yeah. in the night, watching the fires and buildings burn around them yeah. because they're paying the price for that little bit of joy. Yeah, I mean, and we can talk about the importance of pancakes because it's his mom's meal that she cooks yeah. him, and she gives him pan- pancakes to get to the, the front. Buried, the jam, or whatever. Yeah, she scrolls yeah. away some jam specifically yeah. for him, and then by the end of it, he's so disgusted with his trip home, he doesn't want to eat them, and almost gives them to the Russian soldiers before he realizes, wait, this is something my mom actually made for me, and that's yeah. such an. And so he shares them, but he still eats some. For is that himself. the same visit? I was just leafing through. I don't know if the same chapter where he says, "I should have never come home." Is that the same one? Or that, is that a later I think visit the end home? Of the yeah. trip. 
Okay. Yeah. Right. So that idea that we've been talking about, you can't go back. You're not the same person. I yeah. don't see you anymore. Careful. We're not reading Tom Wolfe yet. <laughs> look, look, Homeward Angel. I will say, since we are pretending to be literate here, it comes from a farewell to arms. I've never tasted anything I, I so cool and clean. Was, yeah. They mm-hmm. made me feel civilized, yeah, and I feel like war a war novel, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same war, right? Or yeah. was that a uh, Spanish Civil War? Farewell to Arms is... Yeah, that is the Spanish Civil yeah. War. Yeah, yeah same. <laughs> We're close it's enough. It all runs together, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about this home trip because this is what we've been dancing around, and then after it, it gets... It kind of tumbles to the end. Um, but when he's home and he gets his home leave, he gets like 15 days or whatever it is. He goes home to see his family. He tries to surprise them, um, and they're kind of shocked to see him. Um, and he, you know, goes home, eats with his mother and, and his sister, I think, is home. And his mother's not doing well. Uh, she has cancer. And he looks at his books like Mike talked about before. Yeah. 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 That's all chapter six, seven, seven, seven. Yeah. seven. Um, and, you know, he gets 17 days of leave. Uh, he then has to go back to training and then will return in six weeks. And we have the morbid thought. I wonder how many people even survive six weeks. Um, and, of course, this is where he feels like he's a stranger in his own hometown. This is his mother dying with cancer and how hard it is to get medicine because it's all going to the front. And she can't even food find food to keep her healthy. Um, then the war comes back because a major is angry. He doesn't salute him in the street. And I find this, I mean, that might be the most jarring thing about this. Um but, you know, Paul's father is kind of still sucked into all this patriotism. He wants to know how many men he's killed, how valiant this war is going. And Paul just doesn't have the words. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have PTSD here, which they called shell shock. Like the sound of the trains is making him think of the bombs screaming. And so he really can't even identify. Um, and, you know, it's that trying to recapture his childhood innocence, which is long gone. Um, and we come across some of his old schoolmasters and his old teachers and even a fellow classmate who is now a training officer. Um, but. You know, Kantarek is now part of the war, as we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just want to make sure we, we don't even have to talk about it much more. But it's just this is the pivot point of the book because so far we've seen pretty much the exclusively the point of view of these soldiers. And they've yeah. had a really rough life. But then when they go home, it's like the people are living kind of in a fantasy land. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. yeah it's, that, it's that disconnect. And I think that it really comes to fruition when they're in the prison. And when he, for the first time, Paul is seeing these Russian prisoners and is recognizing that there's a lot more that they have in common than there is a difference between them. And I have the passage here. This is kind of at the the end of that train of thought. It says, a word of command has made these silent figures our enemies. A word of command might transform them into our friends. At some table, a document is signed by some persons whom none of us know. And then for years together, that very crime on which formerly the world's condemnation and severest penalty fall become our highest aim. But who can draw such a distinction when he looks at these quiet men with their childlike faces and apostles' beards. Any non-commissioned officer is more of an enemy to a recruit, any schoolmaster to a pupil, than they are to us. And yet we would shoot at them again, and they at us, if they were free. And I think that it's just, that's, that's the passage that to me perfectly demonstrates that disconnect between those that are in the authority and that those that are back home that are making these nationalistic claims and the soldiers that are in the trenches and are discovering just how similar they are to their enemy. Uh, and, and that discrepancy, that juxtaposition is really comes to a front at that moment in the prison. And I don't think that the rest of the story is the same after that. I think that it's, it's through that recognition that, that a lot more of the bleak aspects of what are we even doing out here mm-hmm. It really ends up coming to the coming to the boil, but they have no recourse other than to shoot and kill those other people yeah. because they're shooting and killing at them. And I had that pilot 
passage highlight as well. And it makes me think of, um, you, you probably know this, Nick, Company H by Sam Watkins. Yeah. Uh, the Civil War Diary. Yeah, he of was course. A, he was a... Um, confederate soldier that traveled and was in pretty much every major battle somehow yeah. but he has a line or a similar idea that i never shot at the officers because those were the guys that were shooting at me he was always mm -hmm. shooting mm -hmm. at the at the foot soldiers and right. so that idea that yeah we're the same but i gotta kill you before you kill me right um but that realization of what's the point of all this if i don't have any personal beef with you but if we just stopped we could stop but if you've uh, watched the Civil War documentary by Ken Burns, you've heard Sam Watkins a lot because yeah. he's the Confederate voice. It's a, it's Very a good. great, if you're into that, it's a really, I recommend that diary. Yeah, yeah incredible. Um, and uh, to your point, um, I think the thing that really triggers that in Paul is he sees the camaraderie between the Russians, right? Mm -hmm. And it reminds him of the man on the front. And again, in a way where he's in training, he's not back at the front yet, and this is right before his sister and father come to visit him right before he returns. Right. But like, he identifies with how the Russians are acting, and they're starving too. They're like going through the garbage looking for food. They're trading anything they can find for like a loaf of bread or a slice of bread. Um, and if, at the end of this, this is where he decides to give him the, the pancakes, like I mentioned earlier. But, like, he sees these Russians as just, you know, they're comrades to each other the same way I am with the soldiers I know. Um, and it's 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 hard. It's, it's a difficult way to identify with. Um, and, and, again, I'm, I might be a little bit out of order. But somewhere in here, we have Paul's last night as well, mm -hmm. and his mother's sitting at the foot of his bed, and he knows she's dying. In fact, when he's with the Russians, his mom is in the hospital again. Um, and you know, again, it's the last night of of, of last night before you go to summer camp. It's the last night of break. Like he just wants to stay with his mother mm -hmm. because he knows she's dying, and he's like, "We wish we could die together." It's the kind of sentiment you get. Um, he visits uh, Kemmerich's mother also. Oh, yeah. And yeah. she wants to know how he died, knowing that it was probably painful. And Paul lies to her, saying it wasn't. And, um, you know, because it's the lie is easier than the truth. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, that's that's a hard scene. It's really hard. It's yeah, such absolutely. a hard... She, she makes him, like, swear by all he believes in. And he has the line where he says, well, what, what do I even believe in anymore? Yeah. And it's the it's it's heartbreaking on both fronts. And, and you see him hold up that lie that, that it was instantaneous, that, that he didn't suffer. Yeah, and it's it's just it's. I mean, and again, we're we're speeding towards the end of this book because there's not much levity. I will mention one of the themes throughout is women, uh, not necessarily women as people, but women as objects. Prostitution mm. comes up a lot, but it's like Mike said earlier, it's really just a human reaction. Um, they they need companionship, just like they need food, and so there's a lot of scenes with prostitution or French teenagers even at times uh, that feel not inorganic, but feel like it was part of someone's actual story because it almost doesn't fit into the narrative, but it's such a part of who these people are that it feels like it's a lived-in story. I I don't know how else to put it. Well, I mean, I guess in the most basic sort of animalistic level you're just looking for a connection or a right. bit of pleasure however short-lived or mm -hmm. that might be um, that's how i read those just, i mean that's that's what i did too i mean because yeah. like the scene with the french girls like the 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 french women are hungry too so right. they, they get whatever rations yeah, everybody's they can. using each other yeah. yeah yeah so they're using each other that's exactly that's how it's put and right. it's it's yeah it's it's interesting it's Everyone's well done. in survival mode yeah yeah. But as you go, and I'm just flipping through the pages, and then I open up, and then there's a little bullet point, like, Muller is dead. And just, like, you're turning the page, and uh, someone else falls, or something else happens, and it just gets bleaker and bleaker and yeah. bleaker. Yeah, yeah it, this it just goes to my research for a second, but I was reading a, a famous, uh, not even a famous diary, just a diary I got from a soldier who ended up getting wounded at the Battle of Kennesaw. He was a Union soldier. Hmm. And he was talking about his experience in the field hospital, which is why I collected it. But he was talking about, like, well, I was taken to the hospital. They assessed me. I was fine. I went to bed. I was fine. I woke up stiff the next day, but they said it was probably just, um, you know, swelling. It was fine. And then one day it just says, I woke up without a leg today. And that was the entire entry for the day. And to me, after reading so much bleakness, it's almost black comedy. 
but that's how brusque it yeah. is. Like, mm-hmm. well, Mueller's dead. And you're just like, wait, what? Tell me more. But Paul has to move on because we have to move on. Um, and, and there's a great passage later, and it just gets bleaker and bleaker. Um, I'm not sure which chapter this is. But I am young. I'm 20 years old, yet I know nothing of life but despair, death, fear, and fatuous superficiality cast over an abyss of sorrow. <laughs> I mean, there's some great language, but man, poor kid. Yeah. Uh, I see how peoples are set against one another and in silence, unknowingly, foolishly, obediently, innocently slay one another. I see that the keenest brains of the world invent weapons and words to w- make it yet more refined and enduring. Yeah. And it's like, oh, he, just, he gets it. He sees it, but he's powerless to do anything. Yeah. That's the tragedy of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then uh, the end, should we read the end if we're just going to go there? Yeah. Well, I mean, the only other scene I want to talk about briefly is where he wounds the guy that lands on top oh, of him and yeah, watches of course. him die. Yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, so Paul volunteers to crawl into no man's lane to gather information about the enemy's strength, and then the b- bombardment begins, right? And, like, as the bombardment starts to happen, Paul realizes he has to be pretend to be dead, so he crawls into a shell hole to wait for the attack to end. Uh, an enemy jumps into the like the hole with him, right? Comes into the crater. Paul stabs him, uh, and essentially keeps the knife in because he assumes he's dead. And then, but it's night now, so he doesn't know. Um, and so, the, eventually, we realize that the French soldier isn't dead, and he w- gives him water. He bandages his wounds, and the man takes years or days, hours to die. But like Paul's final, like killed someone in hand-to-hand combat. It's the first time, and it's the worst. Yeah. But, but, no, go ahead, Mike. I was gonna say he he kind of kills him in hand-to-hand combat. He certainly wounds him in hand-to-hand combat, and then almost immediately regrets that decision mm-hmm. and and has this moment where he's speaking to I, I can't remember I think the soldier has actually died already and he's saying to him I I only did this because if I didn't you were gonna kill me and I and he he has like he's torn up by this regret and then he talks about how he he reaches into the into his wallet and and in one sense doesn't want to know this person's identity doesn't want to know the name that's associated with him and on the other sense knows that he's never that, that he has to that he has mm. to look at who this person was and uh, and it's it's a really heartbreaking scene that that of of all the moments in the text, I think that's probably the one that stuck with me the most was yeah. him reaching in, and it, it it's almost similar to, on the flip side of that coin, his buddies that would not allow themselves to think about what life would be like back at home, who just were were putting up that mental blockade and would not allow themselves to think about that. We have on the other side of this now he's putting up a mental blockade, or at least in a moment for is is deciding whether he's going to put up that mental blockade to decide whether he's going to know this person's name and this person's life and this person's story and of course he does go into that person's wallet and learns his name and the fact that he has a wife and the fact that he has a child uh, and it's oh man it's it's probably the scene that stuck with me the most doesn't he think he, oh, he has intentions of alright to them and, and yeah. but he realizes to and, your point and, he can't do that and again and again he keeps saying that but but I knew even in the moment that I wasn't going to be yeah. able to fulfill that promise but, but back to the idea of everyone's um, sort of doing what you can and surviving. Yeah, he, survival. He gives him water because he thinks if this this foxhole gets overrun by the French, it, gotta, it has to look like I was at least trying right. to save his life. Yeah. So, you know, it's all sort of self-interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and trying to preserve it. But in doing that, it humanizes him and he realizes what's happening and what he's been doing. Yeah, and when, and when he finally gets back to his buddies, Cat and Crop. Like, yeah, get over it. Yeah, yeah, because like he goes, look, they're snipers, and yeah. snipers seem to enjoy killing. You did it to, at least you had to do it to survive. It was killed or be killed. But it is, like, also the most gruesome, like, he's on top of him when it, like, he bleeds out. It is just, it's an incredible scene, but it is also the most gruesome oh, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's only a few more people left to kill. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, Bombs fall. Pancakes are falling here. This is where we have some cognac and and a stray cat even. Um, A dead cat. A dead cat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But at this point, 
this is where Crop gets a fever and stays at the hospital mm-hmm. nearby. Paul fakes the fever um, so that they can stay together, um, but Crop does not improve, and he has to have his leg amputated, and this is where it gets worse again. Um yeah, uh, we have people who are dying constantly at this point, and we get kind of a tour of this hospital. We get Lewandowski, the guy who's had an abdominal injury, and his wife is coming to see him, and it's, you know, and he's so excited about it. But by the time she arrives, he's excited himself so much that he gets sick, and he really can't spend mm. time with her. And, yeah, no. Um, uh, and, yeah. The, the last chapter, of course, is where everything falls apart, so we can kind of jump to the end here. I mean, it's autumn, and the last one, and the beginning of the last chapter is autumn. There are not many of the old hands left. I'm the last of seven fellows from our class. Everyone talks of peace and armistice, then he goes on and has this sort of impressionistic view of, of what he's seen and um, living through, and then you flip to the last page, and then it shifts point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it says, he fell on October 1918 on a day that was so quiet and still on the whole front that the whole army report confined itself to a single sentence, all quiet on the Western front. Yeah. And, like, that chapter is, you know, the chapter before, he carries Cat, thinking he can save Cat, and Cat dies in his arms. And here he dies on a day that doesn't even matter to the German army. And it's... You know, and I mean, as as a literary person, we talked about this literally yesterday. But autumn is such a specific time right. to place yeah. this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thinking back to the the end of Gatsby, thinking back to that that seasonal symbolism of the fall and the autumn, and um, and I, I think that it's it's certainly no coincidence. I also was in in preparing for the podcast was looking at the. I, I, I kept coming across the the German translation oh, wow. of All Quiet in the Western Front, and the In the West, Nothing New is the way that the title All Quiet in the Western Front, and I think, hmm. if possible, In the West, Nothing New is an even more bleak and an even more yeah. tragic yeah. Yeah, damnation, if you will, of, the, of the, the events of the story. In the West, Nothing New. Oh, I like that. It's yeah. almost haunting in a way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and like, and at this point, he's lost all his friends. I think at the beginning of the last chapter, he even has recently inhaled poison gas. And yeah, gotten he swallows a, a bit of gas. Yeah, yeah, and and there was this question like, well, he has time to leave, but do you want to go home? And he's like, I don't even want to go home. I have no goals. I have no one there, and like, yeah, and he has this face as though he was ready to to die. It's it's such a tragic end because um, there's nothing to live for, right? Doesn't believe in the cause. All his friends are gone, and it's, that, it's inevitable that in some way. Is yeah. Gone. yeah, he's alone. So yeah. sad. Yeah, the the Americans have entered the war. There's nothing left. He dies a month before the war ends, October of 1918. Right. Um, so there you have it. Uh, so before we get his annex, what do you? <laughs> yeah. Go home and have a stiff drink. Um, That's right. Uh, what do you think, Mike? No, it's an amazing work, and I, you know, having read it in school and known that it was taught here and done well, it's strange. It's kind of fallen out of the curriculum. I'm not sure why. Um, it probably should be read by every literate person and leaders and all that, but. Um, it's a beautiful work. Yeah. 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 It's, it's bleak. Yeah. Tragic, sad, bleak, but I also think beautiful. And, and not just at moments, I think throughout. I mm-hmm. think the the language is is stunning and the the vignettes and the scenes that you get throughout this this story that is, I think, supposed to be kind of an an all encompassing kind of in, in a similar way, we're finishing up Fahrenheit 451 in eighth grade, but in this in the same way that Guy Montag is kind of symbolic of all men, you get this character of Paul that is symbolic of all warriors and all um, and all soldiers during this time period, and it's uh, and I think that 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 lack of distinction between the different sides and those prisoners and what it is that makes them so much more similar than they are different. I think that it's, there's a lot thematically and there's a lot in terms of the language that I, I do think that it deserves to be taught. And I think that it, that, that it should be taught. Especially since it's from the German point of view, right. from an American, those are the enemies. And so right. if, if they're feeling this way, right. Yeah. And for us, it's such a triumphant war, the war to make the world safe for democracy. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's incredible. It, it it reminds me of a lot of the authors of that generation. Um, you know, your Hemingways and such, um, Gertrude Stein, I guess. Uh, but for me, this is much less uh, short than Hemingway. Like his sentences are some very beautiful, long quotes, very full world. Um, I do think it could be read more. I think it should be read more. Um, something I alluded to, but we really didn't get into this much. But it's a very masculine book. It's yeah, it's totally the role of of manhood um most war books are though aren't they i mean, the, the, I mean they are yeah. um so you know whether or not it's uh for everyone i guess is, is like i don't know if you could even do a feminist interpretation of it because women play such a small part in this mm-hmm. story um but it is it is truly remarkable and um i do think it should be uh reinterpreted reread um and yeah i don't know uh what ap world is doing now but well, it, we it just don't have time. there's a new netflix right yeah <laughs> Yeah, you guys seen so. it? We, it we scheduled it this year because uh, it came out the 1st of November, okay. last day so of uh, October. Yeah. So it is new. Um, and if you can find the criterion of the old one, it's also masterful. Uh, anyway, uh, we're out of time. So obviously this came out a little late. We just it's finals here, so we're running on fumes. Uh, but we've done a slight change in schedule than I had told you before, so I'll tell you here now. Our next episode is going to be the Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers, um, with uh, Robert von Hagen coming back on the mic, and uh, then we're going to take some time off in December, which I'll talk about then. Uh, but we will do one episode. We'll do one on a Christmas Carol, a nice, a nice seasonally appropriate. We need a palate cleanser. Come on. I was going to say, how different can we get? from all quite on the western front. I will say, though, the war scenes in Two Towers, not as depressing. Yeah, yeah. Much more, much more optimistic. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for doing all you guys do. Can you give us the Insta? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael.c.carol. Thank you, everybody who's been following along. Thank you for everybody who's been listening and everybody that's been so supportive of my writing as well. Uh, I really can't thank everybody enough. So just wanted to give an, an, another shout-out to the to the professional page and and thank you guys all for, for all your support. Yeah, um, and follow us all on Twitter, which we've mentioned before, and is on the website. Uh, I guess the pseudo official one is at Required Reading, but uh, Mike is on Twitter, and Mike is on Twitter, and I'm on Twitter. Uh, if you want to see all the things we do at Marist, check out maristpodcasting.com. But in the meantime, keep sharing, keep reviewing wherever you get it, and thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Thanks. Yep. Required Reading is a product of Maris Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. It's hosted by Nick Hoffman and co-hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is Sands by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests, but not of Marist School. All rights reserved. Thanks. <laughs>